Amen. Thank you, brother. So good to be here. Uh, one of the greatest joys of my life at this stage of my life is being with our graduates. Uh, we just concluded our final extended meeting in Ashboro. And uh, at the age of 83, we felt we could continue our ministry for a much longer time if we would cut back to preaching on Sundays and Wednesdays. Now, please don't get the idea that we're hanging it up now because we have 42 Sundays scheduled between now and the end of the year. And uh, we will be from North Carolina all the way to California, to Texas, New Mexico, Arizona. So uh, we're wanting to extend our meeting as long as the Lord would have us on the road. Often people ask me, how long do you plan on staying on the road? And I say, well, until the Lord disables us or else I start gaffing like the one who uh, resides in the White House. And, uh, and when I do that, my wife will say, honey, it's time to hang it up. I want to introduce my wife, honey, would you stand please? Uh, we have been hanging out together for 58 years. Now, she would have you know that she's eight years younger than I. But the Bible says, train up a child in the way it should go, and it's really worked. And uh, it's so good to see Dr. Childs here. I told somebody we had Dr. Childs teaching Pentateuch because he was a contemporary of Moses, and he knew him very well. And then, uh, so good to see uh, Billy and Christy, I, I was thinking, uh, Pastor, when I'm in church, in my home church, our pastor is a graduate of ambassador. So in church, I call him pastor. When he's out of the pulpit, I call him Nathan. So I'll be calling you pastor in the pulpit, but uh, Billy outside of the pulpit. Let me mention that in the vestibule, and by the way, you were working on that vestibule when we were here before, and it's beautiful, it really is. Everything around this place reflects on the glory of God. Paul said that we may uh, uh, accept the things that are excellent. God is not interested in mediocrity. He's interested in excellence. Uh, here's my book on prophecy, 11 chapters dealing with prophetic themes. Last chapter's on heaven, it's worth the price of the book. And then here's the book, fourth grade on up, the four crises of you, four questions every young person has to answer, which will determine the rest of his life. And then my autobiography, 61 years in evangelism, 83 years on planet Earth. When I was six months old, my grandmother told me she walked into our third story apartment in Brooklyn, saw my mother take me in her arms, was about to drop me from a three-story window. My grandmother grabbed me out of my mother's arms, threw my mother on the bed. Had my grandmother delayed five minutes I'd have been a dead baby laying on the streets of Brooklyn, New York. 
from the age of seven to 15, sang in the nightclub stage, radio and TV, and all that is in my autobiography. If you bought these singly, it'd be $35, but if you get all three of them, we knocked $5 off the total price and also give you a CD of my life story that was dramatized and unshackled. Since we're not taking extended meetings anymore, uh, we are not carrying CDs with us. However, I have a flash drive or a USB stick with 33 of the most requested messages that I preach. And above all, go by the table, pick up our itinerary so you can use that as a prayer card. All right, let's stand please for the reading of God's word, Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16. <clears throat> Notice, please, Revelation 19, 11 through 16. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. And his eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed in a vesture dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fiercest and the wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Hallelujah. Thank you. You may be seated. In this passage, ladies and gentlemen, we have the second advent of Christ. Now, there are folks who have been saved for a long time are not aware that the second coming of Christ is in two phases. When he comes for those of us who are saved, his feet will not touch the earth, but we will be raised to meet him in the air. That's called the rapture. Somebody objects and says, now wait a minute, where do you find that word rapture in your English Bible? You don't find it. It is what is called a transliteration. And that's simply a fancy word for saying we take a foreign word and we make it an English word. And it comes from the Latin word rapto, rapture, 1 Thessalonians 4, 17, caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. After the rapture, there will be seven years of tribulation where all hell breaks loose on earth. After the seven-year tribulation, Jesus is coming back to earth. Those of us who are saved are coming back to earth with him. That's called the revelation or the second advent of Christ. Dr. H. Ironside said, one may go through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and he will only find one reference that deals with the rapture. 
That's John 14 and verse 3. And if I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Now, in all due respect to Dr. Ironside, I believe that there's another passage in the Gospels that deals with the rapture. John 11, 25 and 26. Jesus saith unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. So there is the rapture, seven years of tribulation, and then the revelation or the second advent. There are no less than 330 verses in the New Testament speak of the second coming of Christ. 41 deal with the rapture. 290 deal with the second advent or the revelation. Now, as far as I can tell, there are only two passages in the entire Bible that mention both phases of the second coming in the same verse. For instance, Titus 2 and verse 13, looking for that blessed hope, that's the rapture, and the glorious appearing, that's the revelation, of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Again, 2 Timothy 4 and verse 1. I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing, that's the rapture, and at his kingdom, that's the revelation or the second advent. Now, obviously, what we are concerned with this morning in our message is the second advent of Christ. As you go down through these six verses, you will see four names that are given to Jesus Christ. Two have to do with his first coming. Two have to do with his second coming. Speaking this morning on the names of Christ. Will you notice, please, verse 11. For the first name he has given, he is called faithful, and true. I call that the name of his sinlessness. John 8 and verse 44 says, the devil's a liar and the father of lies. Jesus is faithful and true. Everything Jesus is, the devil is not. Everything the devil is, Jesus Christ is not. The devil is a liar and the father of lies. Jesus is faithful and true. He was a lamb without blemish and without spot, 1 Peter 1.18. 1 Peter 2.22, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also has suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21, for he, that's God, hath made him, that's Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Several years ago, when we were in Singapore the second time, the pastor said, Brother Comfort, how would you like to go through the largest complex on the island of Singapore. It was a Buddhist complex. And so there were several buildings connected to it. 
But in one building, there was a platform with a uh, table in front of it, which was for visitors to talk, uh, to read about Buddhism and Buddha. So I picked up a, a book on the life of Buddha, and I was amazed to realize that Buddha never claimed sinless perfection. Did you know that? That was a revelation to me. I thought certainly Buddha would have professed to be sinless, but I thought about that. And I came to the conclusion, no founder of any religion claims sinless perfection. But Jesus Christ did. In John 8 and verse 46, he challenged the Pharisees. He said, which of you convinceth me of sin? There wasn't a Pharisee in the crowd that could say that Jesus ever told a half-truth, that he ever said anything that had a double meaning. He was faithful and true, his sinlessness. In John chapter 14 and verse 30, as he's facing the cross, he said, the prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me. Only Jesus could say, I do always the things that please my heavenly Father. Why Pontius Pilate had to say, I find in him no fault at all. Pilate's wife said, have nothing to do with the blood of this just man. That dying thief on the right hand of Christ said, this man has nothing amiss. Even Judas Iscariot had to say, I betrayed innocent blood. There was a centurion that stood by his cross. He heard the seven last sayings, witnessed the three hours of darkness over the land and the earthquake, and finally he concluded in Matthew 27 and verse 54. Truly, this was the Son of God. My son-in-law is an evangelist, Mike Pelletier. This is his 34th year in evangelism. When Mike was getting started, I would take him in meetings with me as he would preach to the Christian school and I would preach to the local church. And uh, so he was preaching in North Carolina to a Christian school and a young man got saved that week. He came to Mike and he said, Brother Mike, he said, I've been saved this week. And he said, before this week, I thought that Jesus was simply a good man in the crowd that volunteered to die on the cross for the sins of the world. And my son-in-law rightly said, young man, if he had simply been a good man in the crowd, he could not have paid my sin debt. It took a lamb without blemish and without spot. Sinlessness, he's faithful and true. Will you notice, please, number two, verse 12. I call this the name of his superiority. He has a name written that no man knows but he himself. Song of Solomon 5:16. His mouth is most sweet, yea, he's altogether lovely. Psalm 45 
verse 2, Thou art fairer than the children of men. Gracious poured into thy lips. Therefore God hath blessed thee forever. Psalm 89 and verse 6, For who in the heavens can be compared unto the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty can be likened unto the Lord. Philippians 2, 9 through 11, wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven, of things in earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father, the name of his superiority. Ladies and gentlemen, I ask you, is he superior in your life? If you had to make a list of your priorities, where would Jesus be on that list? Is he superior in your life? In the book of Hebrews, he is superior to the prophets, to the apostles, to the angels, to Moses, to Melchizedek, he is Lord. He's superior to presidents, to emperors, to congressmen and to senators and to governors. He is Lord. The name of his superiority. H.C. Wells, a historian, said this, Jesus Christ is the most dominant figure in the history of mankind. Now think of that. He only had a ministry of three and a half years. But he's the most dominant figure in the history of mankind. Now folks, John 21 and 25 says this, and there are many other things which Jesus did, which if they should be written every one, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that could be written therein. Ladies and gentlemen, three and a half years, and yet millions this very hour are worshiping him. He's superior. He, you see, there have been more books written about Jesus and are still written about Jesus that have ever been written about anybody. There are more poems, there are more hymns about Jesus than any other person that's ever lived. He's superior, ladies and gentlemen. And I want to say that name, which is above every name, millions have been willing to shed their life's blood for. All you've got to do is read Fox's Book of Martyrs, and you will find millions who were willing to lay down their life for that name which is above our name. And as we sit here, there are still millions that are willing to shed their blood for that person who is superior. Now, when you leave this building this morning, you will either receive him or rejected him. Matthew 12 and verse 30, he that is not with me is against me, and he that gathered not with me scattereth abroad. When I started Ambassador Baptist College in 1989, my good friend Gene Lashley from Buffalo Ridge Baptist Church, East Tennessee, asked me to come and preach for the Christmas holidays. And so 
I have found later on the best way to go to East Tennessee from Shelby, North Carolina, you go north Interstate 40, you go west Asheville, and then you go north Interstate 26. And that's about a two and a half hour trip. But as I looked at the map, I said, that's not the straight line. The straight line is to go through the mountains. Now, folks, my wife will tell you that I am directionally challenged. When you give me directions, don't give me any of this east and west business. I don't understand that. I do understand right and left, but I don't understand east and west. Several years ago, when the GPSs came out, my wife bought me a GPS for Christmas. And you know, folks, I never thought I'd have two women telling me what to do all my life. But I listen to that woman in that little box, and when I do, I wind up in the right place. But at that time, I thought, now I can cut off some time by going through the mountains. Instead of it taking me two and a half hours, it took me four hours to go through the mountains. And I believe I went places that Sunday morning where very few human beings have ever been. But you know, folks, here's the point. I noticed a name over and over and over and over again. You know what that name was? Jesus Christ. I noticed it on billboards. I noticed it on bumper stickers, marquees in churchyards, uh, post uh, places in people's yards. And over and over and over again, I saw the name Jesus Christ. And I thought to myself, unless it's a political season, there is no place that you can drive four hours and notice the same name over and over and over again, unless it is the name Jesus Christ. And you know what? I didn't see the name Michael Jordan one time. But over and over again, I saw the name, Jesus Christ. He's superior, ladies and gentlemen. Now, let me ask you, how do you read this book? Somebody said, well, I made God a promise that I was going to read my Bible every day. So last night, I read Psalm 117, the shortest psalm in the Bible, two verses, and I did my duty to God and man. I read my Bible. Are you listening? That stinks. You know how you ought to read this book? 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 18. Now we all with open face beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image even from glory to glory even as by the Spirit of the Lord. So you know what that verse tells me? If I read this book to see Jesus, the Holy Spirit conforms me into the image of Jesus Christ. Folks, he's on every page. In the Old Testament, he was predicted. In the Gospels, he was present. In the book of the Acts, he is proclaimed. In the epistles, he is possessed. And in the book of the Revelation, he is predominant. This book is all about Jesus. In Genesis, he's the seed of the woman. In Exodus, he's a Passover lamb. 
In Leviticus, he's the meal, the wave, the heave, the trespass offering. In Numbers, he's a manna that came down from heaven. In Deuteronomy, he is the rock. In Joshua, he's the captain of the Lord's host. In Judges, he is the angel of the Lord. In Ruth, he's our kinsman. In Psalms, he's our sword, our shield, our buckler, our high tower. In Proverbs, he is wisdom personified. In the Song of Solomon, he is our beloved. In Isaiah, he's the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. In Haggai, he's the desire of all nations. In Malachi, he's the son of righteousness. In Matthew, he's the king of the Jews. In Mark, he's the son of God. In Luke, he's the son of man. In John, he's the son of God and the son of man. It's all about Jesus, folks. And if you pick up this book and you don't see Jesus, pick it up again. He's on every page. Number one, we notice the name of his sinlessness, faithful and true. Number two, the name of his superiority. He has a name written that no man knows but himself. But here's the name the Jehovah's Witnesses do not like. I call this the name of his sonship. In verse 13, he is called the Word of God. John 1, 1 through 3, in the beginning was a word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. John 1 and verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Several years ago on a Saturday, I had a Jehovah's Witness come up to my yard. And when I went upstairs, my wife said, Honey, did I see that you were talking to a Jehovah's Witness? I said, Yes. I said, How did you know that? She said, Well, I saw you shaking your finger at him. But anyway, when he came up to my yard, I said, Sir, do I discern your Jehovah's Witness? He said, Yes, I am. I said, uh, does your New World Translation say in John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God? He said, yes, it does. I said, if you believe that, you'll die and go to hell. 1 John 2.22, who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ? He is antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. He said, well, do you know what the name uh, Jesus means? I said, I surely do. It means I am salvation. He said, no, it doesn't. It means Jehovah is salvation. I said, I'm glad you said that. I said, I want you to take your New World Translation and turn to Isaiah 40 and verse 3. By the way, the best verse in the Bible in the Old Testament on dealing with the deity of Christ with a Jehovah's Witness. Isaiah 40 and verse 3 is fulfilled in Luke 3 and verse 4. I said, all right, let's read Isaiah 40 and verse 3. It says, the voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, 
Prepare ye the way of the L-O-R-D in capital letters. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. I said, now, let me ask you some questions about this verse. I said, what is the word L-O-R-D in capital letters? He said, it's the word Jehovah. I said, you're right. I said, number two, who does this verse prophesy? He said, it prophesies John the Baptist. I said, you're right. I'm impressed. I said, here's my third question. Who was John the Baptist the forerunner of? He said he was a forerunner of Jesus Christ. I said, I got gotcha. you. I got gotcha. you. I said, Isaiah 40 and verse 3 says he was a forerunner of Jehovah. I said, you know what intelligence tells me? The Jehovah of Isaiah 40 and verse 3 is the Jesus Christ of Luke 3 and verse 4. And unless you believe that, you'll never get to heaven. I was preaching in June of 1996 in Phoenix, Arizona. Now, a fella has to be hard up for meetings to preach in Phoenix in June. Folks, 115 degrees. You know what they say. Well, it's dry heat. Well, man, if you can fry an egg on the pavement, it doesn't matter whether it's wet or dry. It's hot. <laughs> and I preached on a Sunday morning and quoted Isaiah chapter 53, written 700 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. When I quoted Isaiah 53, a lady who had been a Jehovah's Witness for 20 years said, I see it. I see it. She said the Jehovah of the Old Testament is the Jesus Christ of the New. And she was born again. So we notice the name of his sonship. But in closing, I love this. I call this the name of his sovereignty. In verse 16, he is called King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Revelation eleven fifteen. And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Hallelujah. Psalm 2, 1 through 6. Why do they even rage? And the people imagine a vain thing. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us break asunder their bands and cast away their cords from us, get it. But he that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and shall vex them in his sore displeasure. Why? Yet I have set my king upon the holy hill of Zion. He is a king and he shall reign forever and ever. In his birth, he was announced by an angel as a king. In Luke 1, 32 and 33, and he shall be great. 
and shall be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God shall give him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. He was announced as a king in his birth, and in his death he was announced as a king. Over his cross, Matthew 27, 37, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. But nothing about Jesus resembled a king. He was born in a stinking stable, laid in a barred manger. When they saw him, there was no beauty that they should desire him. He was a lowly Nazarene from Galilee. So they put him on a cross. In 1947, Europe was abuzz with the royal wedding of Princess Elizabeth to the Duke of Edinburgh. And for months, the papers picked up the story of the day when the royal couple would proceed to the chapel and exchange vows. Well, the day came. People from all over Europe came to view the royal couple. In the crowd that day was a 12-year-old boy, King Faisal II from Iraq. As he stood in line to view the royal couple, something caught his eye to him that was more important than the royal couple. It was the royal horses. He was a horseman. So he broke the line to get a better look at the horses. The police, not knowing who he was, grabbed him. They shoved him back in line and they warned him, you stay in line or else. The next day in the greatest newspaper in London, in the headlines there was an apology. We did not know who he was. You see, if he had been wearing a crown and carrying a scepter, they would have known he was a king. But Jesus, nothing about him resembled a king. And when he comes the next time, the world with embarrassment will say, we did not know who he was. In closing, in 1975, my wife and I took a trip uh, with Dr. Bill Rice, who's now in heaven, it was a 22-day trip, nine nations for $1,200. Think of that. But as we had come from the Bible lands and we were going then to uh, Russia, we stayed in Moscow for four and a half days. Now, when we were in the Bible lands, the weather was moderate. It would be like it is here in October or early November. So most of us didn't have heavy coats. We didn't have gloves. But when we got to Moscow, second week of December, the snow was two to three feet deep. So the first night we were there, the guide set us down and she said, now, I want to talk to you about tomorrow. You will stand in line to view the body of Mr. Lenin, the founder of communism along with Marx. And ladies and gentlemen, in those days in Red Square, there was a mile-long line. And they would wait for a long time just to go by this glass enclosure to view the body of Lenin. And Dr. Bill, when she was talking about that, he said, ma'am, he said, excuse me, we're not dressed for that. 
He said, we've just come back from the Bible lands. Most of us don't have heavy coats. We don't have gloves. And we like to skip that in our itinerary. She said, sir, you have no choice in the matter. You will stand in line to view the body of Mr. Lennon. She said, now, let me give you some ground rules. She said, number one, don't put your hands in your pockets. If our fingers became icicles, we could not put our hands in our pockets. She said, number two, don't shuffle your feet. She said, number three, don't even whisper. As my wife and I stood in line, a man standing with his friend was whispering to him. The police came, took him out of the line. Only God knows what happened to him after that. But folks, the longer I stood in that line, the angrier I became. Why? We'd just come from the open tomb of Jerusalem. We had some North Carolina Baptist preachers with us and they got a little Bapticostal in that open tomb. We started shouting, Hallelujah for a risen Savior. We sang up from the grave with mighty triumph for his folk. He arose a victor of the dark domain and he lives forever with his saints to reign. Hallelujah, he arose. And folks, there was some commotion going on in that tomb. But nobody came down and said, wait a minute, you preachers are making too much noise in here. You can't sing in here. You can't praise God in here. But to see the body of linen, we couldn't even whisper. You know, the first thing I thought when my eyes beheld that dead phony, I thought, Mr. Lennon, one day in the bosom of hell, you will bend your knee and scream that Jesus Christ is Lord. King Playboy Hugh Hefner, the atheist Bill Maher, the blasphemer Howard Stern will one day bend their knees and scream that Jesus Christ is Lord. Are you listening? You will too. Why don't you do it this morning? Because you want to. Don't wait until then. Because you have to. Let's bow our heads in prayer.